All right, well, we're going to get into the teaching of the Word today. You can see from your bulletins that we are starting a new teaching series after we spent the last couple of months diving into emotionally healthy discipleship. And, and I just want to say this, that that teaching series is over and our first class is over, but that doesn't mean that emotionally healthy is over. Pastor Pete Scazzaro actually says that it takes about seven to ten years for the church culture to fully embrace this emotionally healthy lifestyle. Not seven to ten weeks, not seven to ten months, seven to ten years for a church culture to fully embrace this emotionally healthy lifestyle. All right, so we're just seven to ten weeks into this. We're not gonna we're not gonna move away from it, right? We're not just gonna move on to the next thing. We're gonna keep working this thing into our culture. We're gonna continue to be transparent before each other. We're gonna continue to find Jesus in our grief and our suffering. We're gonna continue to embrace our weakness and our brokenness. We're gonna continue to live within the limits that God placed upon our lives. We're gonna continue to explore our past so that we can be set free to live our future. All of these things that we've been learning, we're gonna continue to press into them. And, and you'll hear these, these principles and these thoughts interwoven into sermons that we preach going forward. And, We'll go back and do specific teaching series, but that's who we want to be. We want to be an emotionally healthy church and emotionally healthy people so that we can grow in our spiritual maturity and do all that God intended for us to do. But with that being said, we are moving into a new teaching series, and, and you can see from your bulletin that it's called After God's Own Hearts. <laughs> After God's Own Hearts. And what we're going to do is we're going to spend the summer here. Uh, obviously, it's still May, but June and July, we're going to spend the summer studying King David. And so in our Rooted Bible reading calendar, we're also going to be reading about King David through May, June, and July. We've already started reading 1 Samuel here in May. And then in June and July, we're going to continue reading through uh, First and Second Samuel and some of the Chronicles uh, as, as we study the life of King David. And so let's go ahead and take a look at our big picture point today because my goal today is going to be to uh, lay the foundation of, of what this teaching series means to be after God's own heart, but then also to get into the first part of the teaching series. What we're going to do is we're going to look at eight different aspects of King David's life and what those aspects and those characteristics mean in light of being a person after God's own heart and how that can apply to us as we pursue God. And so the first aspect that we're going to dive into today is David the underdog. We're going to look at what it means that David was a classic underdog in his life. So here's our big picture point from our notes. To be a person after God's own heart is to have your heart aligned with the will of his heart and to be obedient to that will. Right? So to be a person after God's own heart means that our heart is aligned with God's heart and that we are living in obedience to the will of God's heart for our lives. And then we say this, God chooses us based on what he sees in our hearts, not the traits and the skills that the world sees. God chooses us based on what he sees in our hearts, not the traits and the skills that the world sees. So let's go take a look at this, this idea of being a man after God's own heart, or as we're going to say here, a person after God's own heart, because uh, men and women together 
Uh, we are equally valuable in the sight of God, and, and we all want to be chosen as people after God's own heart. So we're going to go to 1 Samuel chapter 13, because this is where that phrase was written by the prophet Samuel. And then we're also going to see that Paul, in one of his sermons in the book of Acts, also referred back to this same phrase, after God's own heart. So what we're finding here in 1 Samuel chapter 13 is that King Saul, who was chosen as king, but who abandoned God and rejected God, and his heart was far from God, he had an army that comprised of approximately 600 men. They were at war with the Philistines. The Philistines had them outnumbered. But Samuel had given Saul a specific directive. He said, wait for me to get there. I'll be there in seven days. And when I get there, we'll give the offerings unto the Lord. And so Saul waited six days. But then he couldn't wait anymore. And on the seventh day, he began to panic. And he made the decision. He said, bring the animals to me. I'm going to provide the offerings on the altar before the Lord. So what King Saul did is he took an authority upon himself that God had not given him. He was chosen to be king, which means he was the military leader of the nation. He was the governmental leader of the nation. But he was not the spiritual leader of the nation. That was reserved for the priest who was Samuel. And so what happened is King Saul tried to take an authority upon himself that God had not given him. And I think we can relate to the fact that all of us at some point or another in our lives have caused trouble in our lives, trouble in our family, uh, trouble somewhere because we've tried to take an authority in our lives that God never intended for us to have. And here's the thing about King Saul. He was good at what he was called to do. As a military leader, he was good. He led many victories, right? He, he led the, uh, the, the, the nation of Israel to, to overcome the oppression of the Philistines. He was good at the things he was called to do. But the first point here you'll see in your notes is this. King Saul excelled in the doing, but he failed in the waiting. King Saul excelled in the doing, but he failed in the waiting. And I think we can relate to this, right? If there's something to do, we'll do it. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely a, a task-oriented person, so uh, I like checklists. I like to-do lists. I like getting things done. When there are things to do, we go do them. But can we endure in the waiting? Can we endure when God's not moving as fast as we want him to? Can we endure when the promises aren't being fulfilled in the timing that we would prefer? Can we endure when things don't look good and things aren't going right? Can we stick with God in the waiting? Can we stick with God in the silence and in the quiet? Can we stick with God on his timetable, not ours? King Saul was great at the doing. But he failed at the waiting. And because he failed in the waiting, he tried to take on an authority that he was never intended to have. And so he offers the burnt offerings. And wouldn't you know it that the smoke was rising in the air from the burnt offerings when Samuel shows up. Saul just needed to wait a couple more hours. He had already waited six days. 
He just needed to wait a couple more hours, and he didn't wait. And so Samuel shows up and asks Saul, what have you done? And Saul says, the people were getting nervous, and I was afraid the army was going to scatter, and yada, yada, yada. He starts making a bunch of excuses rather than humbling himself and saying, I failed in the waiting. I did something I wasn't supposed to do. I repent. Instead, it was just excuses and rationalizing, excuses and rationalizing. And so here's Samuel's response, 1 Samuel 13, starting in verse 13. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. He says, because of your disobedience and your lack of humility and repentance, because of those things, God is taking the kingdom from you. Think about that. If King Saul had just repented in humility, if his heart had just been broken before the Lord, we could have had a whole different story. Jesus would have been of the line of King Saul. But instead, God took the kingdom from him and said, I'm going to give it to a man who's after my own heart. What does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? Well, if we go to Acts 13 and verse 22, Paul is preaching a sermon in the synagogue of, of Antioch of Poseidia. And in his sermon, because he has primarily a Jewish audience, he is recounting Jewish history as it leads up to Jesus as the Savior. And as a part of his recounting of Jewish history, in Acts 13, 22, Paul says this, after he had removed him, referring to God, removing King Saul, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. So what does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? You can see we've got three blanks in your notes. I want to give you three words here from the context of what's happening as Samuel declares this statement. The first is obedience. King Saul is losing the kingdom because of his disobedience. And so God says, I have sought out a person after my own heart, which means I am seeking after a man of obedience. To be a person after God's own heart is to be a person of obedience, to do what God says, to live as Jesus lived, to follow God's will. That's why Paul declared in this sermon that David was a man after God's heart who would do all of God's will. So to be a person after God's heart is to be a person of obedience. But, I mean, we could just wag our finger at everybody and tell them to be obedient, and that doesn't mean they're going to be. So we got to take it a step further than just obedience. The second word I want you to write in is intimacy. Intimacy. Here's the interesting thing. 
We don't know the exact timeline, but when Samuel declares this prophecy in 1 Samuel 13, he says that God had already chosen a new leader. At the time that Samuel is prophesying this, David is still a little kid. But God had already chosen him. And it wasn't until three chapters later that we're going to get to in just a moment that Samuel actually anoints David as the next king of Israel. But even when that happens, David is still a young teenager. And it would still be more than a decade later before David would actually become king. So what do we know about David as a young boy and as a young teenager? We know that he was a shepherd. And what does that mean to be a shepherd? It means to sit out in a field by yourself for hours and hours on end. That's what it means. What did David do? Well, thank God David didn't live today, right? Because if David lived today, he would just be on his phone like this, scrolling through stuff. Right, because that's what we do when we got nothing else going on. That's not what David did. David didn't have a phone. He had a harp. And he sat with that harp before the Lord and had hours upon hours of intimacy with God. Day after day as he tended the sheep all through his childhood and his teenage years, he was a man that developed intimacy with the Lord. And so, yes, he was a man of obedience, but that obedience was birthed out of intimacy. And so if we're going to be a people after God's own heart, yes, we're going to have to be obedient to the Lord. We're going to have to live the way Jesus lived. We're going to have to be obedient to his commands in Scripture. We're going to have to be obedient to his will for our lives. But that obedience is going to be birthed out of intimacy. When we, in the quiet time, put our phones down, and spend time with Jesus. As we practice silence and solitude, as we practice the the daily office and the things that we've been learning from emotionally healthy, as we practice that intimacy, obedience will be birthed out of that, right? Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. So if we spend more time loving Jesus, we'll spend more time obeying his commands too. And the third word I want you to write in there is commitment. Is commitment. This reference to being a man after God's own heart was a reference of a profound commitment to the Lord. I'm committed to God. I'm committed to His ways. I'm committed to His kingdom. I'm committed to His purposes. I'm committed to Him. So what does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? It means that we are a people of obedience, and that obedience flows from our intimacy and our commitment. That's what what God found in David. And that's what we want God to find in us as a people and as a church Hallelujah. It wouldn't be an outdoor service if it didn't pour on us at least once. A couple days ago, Mark actually shared this quote with me from from Pastor D.L. Moody. 
If you're familiar with D.L. Moody's ministry, he was a great preacher and evangelist in the 1800s, traveled around the United States, traveled all the way to the United Kingdom, preaching the gospel, leading revivals, leading thousands upon thousands of people to Christ. He established a, a training school in Chicago that still exists today called the Moody Institute of the Bible. D.L. Moody was just a man that was passionate about serving the Lord and winning the lost. This was a quote from D.L. Moody. He said this, The world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. I aim to be that man. Let me say it again. The world has yet to see what God could do with a man fully consecrated to him. I aim to be that man. Now, at the end of his life, D.L. Moody admitted, I don't think I quite accomplished it. To be fully consecrated to him, right? You know, you hear about studies that human beings, we only use a certain percentage of our brain. And that if we somehow managed to use the full capacity of our brains, that we would all be geniuses with amazing skill sets and amazing abilities. Well, think about that we're not using the full capacity of the Spirit of God that's been placed inside of us. Right? So if they say, well, human beings only use 10% of their brains. Well, are we only using 10% of our capacity in the Spirit of God? Because we've only consecrated ourselves to Him 10%. Have we only consecrated ourselves to Him 20%, 30%? D.L. Moody says, man, the world doesn't even know all that a man could do if he consecrated himself 100%. And D.L. Moody says, I aim to be that man. At the end of his life, he says, I don't think I did it. But D.L. Moody led revivals, built churches, built schools, did amazing things. How could we change the world if we were people after God's own hearts? Even if we never reach 100% fully consecrated to the Lord, man, what could God do with 70%, 80%? What could God do? If we lived lives of obedience, intimacy, and commitment as people after God's own hearts. Second Chronicles 16.9. The prophet declared, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. God is looking to and fro, back and forth, looking for those who have obedience, intimacy, and commitment in their hearts. Obedience, intimacy, and commitment in their hearts. That God might use such people for the glory of his kingdom. God looked around as King Saul failed, and God removed the kingdom from King Saul. God looked around, and what did he see? He saw a young man in a field by himself with a harp, worshiping him and seeking to spend time with him. And God says, there's a man after my own heart. There's a man I'm going to choose. Now, we know that David wasn't perfect. 
We're going to get to that here in a couple weeks when we talk about David the sinner. We know that David wasn't perfect, so we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about a commitment that says, when I fail, I will humble myself and repent. That's what God was missing in King Saul, but what he found in King David. A people that say, I am all in for God, but when I fail, I will humble myself and repent. Let's go to 1 Samuel 16, a few chapters later now. Samuel knows that God has chosen somebody else to be king, but Samuel doesn't know who it is. And years pass without Samuel knowing who it is until we get to 1 Samuel 16. Starting in verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemites, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord says, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, Do you come in peace? Right? So God is sending Samuel to Bethlehem. Bethlehem obviously was not a normal part of Samuel's circuits. Because Samuel recognized as soon as I go to Bethlehem, Saul's going to know something's up. Because Saul is super paranoid at this point. He knows that God has chosen somebody else. And so the moment that Samuel does something out of the ordinary, Saul's going to know. And Saul's going to try to put a stop to it. And so Samuel says, I can't just go to Bethlehem. Saul will send his people to follow me there. And so God says, well, bring a cow with you and pretend like you're going there to offer a sacrifice. It was normal for the priest to go and offer a sacrifice in a community, especially if there was accidental bloodshed and they needed to sacrifice to cover the guilt of the person who had done the accidental bloodshed. And so Samuel shows up in Bethlehem with a cow, and it says the elders of the city of Bethlehem were actually scared, right? Because when the prophet, when the high priest showed up, it either meant he was bringing some bad news, he was going to prophesy some judgment, or he was coming to preside over the trial of a murder, and, and they were afraid either a murder has happened or the prophet has come to bring bad news. And so the elders were scared. But Samuel answers them. We're in verse 4. And the elders of the city came trembling in their heart to meet him and said, Do you come in peace? And he said, In peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Right? So now he's got the elders. He's got Jesse and Jesse's boys going through this consecration process. And he says, I want you guys all to come to the sacrifice. Of course, the sacrifice is just a big ruse. It's just a show that Samuel is putting on because what he's really there to do is anoint a new king. 
but he doesn't want to draw any attention to himself. And so they come for the sacrifice, and in verse 6, when they entered, he looked at Eliab, who was the oldest son of Jesse, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So think about this. Samuel had this word from the Lord that he was going to go to Bethlehem, put on this whole show about a sacrifice to not draw attention to himself, get Jesse and his sons to show up to this sacrifice, and then he's going to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the king. God had put Samuel through all of this, but up until this point had still not told Samuel which son it was. They even went through the consecration process, which generally took a week, right, according to Old Testament law. So now Samuel's been there for a week. You imagine he's just travailing in prayer. God, which son is it? And God never tells him the whole week. And so now Samuel is standing before Jesse and his sons, and he's thinking to himself, God better tell me something, or I'm going to have to trust in my own intuition to anoint the next king. And so when the firstborn comes, and he's big, and he's strong, and he's handsome, and Samuel, in his intuition, says, this must be the one. And then God breaks his silence in verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I want to encourage you with this. It's in your notes. Don't be enamored by the things the world looks at. Don't be enamored by the things the world looks at. Now, Samuel should have known better because they already looked upon a tall, handsome, strong young man who looked like he was fit to be king. His name was Saul, and Samuel had anointed him as king. And clearly the fact that he was big and tall and strong and good-looking didn't matter because his heart wasn't for God. So you would think that Samuel had learned his lesson. But the first chance Samuel has to anoint another man who's big and tall and good-looking and strong, Samuel's like, surely this must be the one. We are so easily enamored with the things that the world looks at. We are so easily enamored with the traits that the world says are important. We are so easily enamored with the accomplishments engaging people by the success that the world looks at. Even when we've had ample evidence to the opposite. And so Samuel, left to his own intuition, was enamored by the physical. But God says, I don't look at the physical. I look at the heart. So it says, Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. And then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are these all of the children? Samuel's like, listen, I have a word from the Lord that one of your sons is going to be king. I was supposed to be here to put on this show to get your sons here to this party so that I could anoint one of them as king, and now God has said no to all of them. So either I heard God wrong, or there's another kid that you're holding out on. Are these all the children? 
And Jesse said, There remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is tending the sheep. And then Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, which means he poured that entire horn of oil over David's head, anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. David was so overlooked by his family that when the prophet said, bring all of your sons to the party, the dad didn't even think it was worth bringing David. That's how overlooked he was by his family. And that's why today we're talking about David the underdog, the one that is overlooked. Because I believe, Kauai Bible Church, that we are a church filled with underdogs. And I believe that's a great thing. Because that means that God can do powerful things through us. They didn't even think David was worth bringing to the party. Yeah, it's a sacrifice. Yeah, it's kind of a big deal. It's an important thing in our town. Yeah, the prophet said to bring all of our sons, but not David. It's not worth bringing him. He can stay with the sheep. David was overlooked throughout his life. He was too young. He was too sweet. He was too tender-hearted of a boy. He couldn't be a warrior. He liked singing to sheep. David, the underdog. But David was anointed as king. Why? Because God saw his heart. God didn't look at the outward appearance. God saw his heart. And he saw within the heart of David exactly what he wanted to see. And so I would say this to us today, that we would not be enamored by the things the world looks at. Instead, we would develop the heart that would sustain our life's calling. That we would develop the heart of intimacy and commitment and obedience. And that we would develop that in our time with the Lord and in our quiet time. And in practicing Sabbath delight and in meditating upon the Lord. That we would develop a heart that would sustain our life's calling. There's a great saying that says this, that your talent will take you further than your character can sustain you. That's what happened to King Saul. His talent took him to be king, but his character couldn't sustain him there. So we can depend on our characteristics, our talents, our skills, our abilities, but that will not sustain our life calling. Our life calling will only be sustained if we, like David, would develop our hearts. God saw his heart, and so God chose him. And then what did God do? Filled him with the Holy Spirit. Listen, God chose him. Even when his family overlooked him, God chose him. And so David was chosen by God, and he was filled with the Spirit of God. And so we want to take something from David's life. If we want to look at David the underdog, then we view ourselves as an underdog, right? Because according to worldly standards, we didn't have a whole lot to offer to this world. But if God sees our heart and God chooses us 
and God fills us with the Holy Spirit, then we can accomplish anything that God puts before us. We can do great supernatural things for his kingdom. We can change the world. So instead of looking at ourselves and saying, I'm not good enough, I can't do anything, I'm not strong enough, I don't have what it takes, I've been overlooked by the world, I don't have any gifts or skills or traits or anything like that. Instead of looking at those things, what if we looked at the same things? Does God see my heart? Did God choose me? And did God fill me with the Holy Spirit? Because if those three things are true, that's all we need. That's all we need to fulfill God's purpose for our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29 says this. This is Paul writing to the church at Corinth. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. You hear that? Come on, God chooses the weak things to confound the strong. God chooses the foolish to confound the wise. God did not choose us because we were strong, mighty, wise, gifted, talented. God did not choose us because we were worthy. God chose us because he saw our hearts. And if our hearts were willing to be surrendered before King Jesus then he saw in our hearts that there was great potential in our lives. And so he chooses us. God delights in choosing and using the underdogs because it confounds the world. The world doesn't get it. The world can't explain it. And so it breaks the pride of man and it brings the glory back to God. Think about it. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament culture, being the firstborn son gave you all of the rights and the privileges and the authority and the inheritance, right? Everything came with the privilege of being the firstborn son. So what does God do throughout the book of Genesis and into the book of Exodus? He keeps choosing men that aren't the firstborn son. He chooses the ones that are overlooked by the world. He chooses the ones that don't have the authority, that don't have the rights and privilege, that don't have the inheritance, Right? He chose Seth, not his older brother Cain. He chose Isaac, not his older brother Ishmael. He chose Jacob, not his older brother Esau. He chose Joseph, not his ten older brothers. He chose Moses, not his older brother Aaron. You guys see the picture. God continually chooses the underdog. And he is not looking at our outward gifting. Even Samuel the prophet himself was the son of the afflicted wife not the son of the rejoicing wife. He was not the firstborn son of Elkanah. God chooses the underdog and uses the underdog to confound the world. And so what we see in David as the underdog should be the great encouragement to us. Let me have the worship team come back up today. And so what do we see then David as the underdog? What is the next thing that he does? In chapter 17, he goes and kills a giant that everybody else is afraid of. 
The mightiest warriors in all of Israel want nothing to do with Goliath. But David, this young teenager, goes and kills the giants. Why does that happen? Because when you know that you've been chosen as an underdog, then you know how to fully rely on God. If we think that we were chosen because of something to do with us, then we tend to live as if life depends on us. It depends on our skills and our abilities, and it depends on us being strong and and, and us. So when we think we were chosen because of us, we tend to rely on ourselves. But when we know that we've been chosen as an underdog, then we can fully rely on God. You think David didn't know he was an underdog? You think David didn't notice that they left him in the field and took the rest of the brothers to the party? You think David didn't hear what they said about him and the way they talked about him? When David showed up at the battlefield with Goliath there and his brother just began to rip into him and tear him apart and tell him what an awful human being he was, and then he goes to King Saul, and King Saul says, sure, you can fight the giant, but you can't do it as yourself because you're not good enough. David heard it over and over again. David knew he was the underdog, but he also knew that God had chosen him as an underdog. And because he knew that God had chosen him as an underdog, he could fully rely on God to kill a giant. He could fully rely on God to kill a giant. It says in your notes that if your giant is too big, then your God is too small. If your giant is too big, then your God is too small. Well, how do we make God bigger in our lives? Well, what did John the Baptist say? I must decrease so that he can increase. So when we look less and less to ourselves and more and more to God, when we recognize that we were not chosen because of what we bring to the table, but we were chosen because God knew he could use our hearts, that we would fully rely on him. King Saul failed in the waiting with an army of 600 If Saul knew his Jewish history, he would know from Gideon that 300 is plenty to overthrow the Philistines. But King Saul had twice as many, but wasn't willing to wait on God because he trusted in what he had to do. So instead of looking at the size of our army, we look at the size of our God. Instead of looking at the size of our church, we look at the size of our God. Instead of looking at the size of our bank account, we trust in the size of our God. Come on, instead of looking at the size of our followers on social media, we look at the size of our God. Instead of looking at the size of our skills, we look at the size of our God. And when we decrease and God increases... Because we know we're the underdogs. We're not supposed to win. We're not supposed to be strong enough. We're not supposed to be big enough. We're not supposed to be influential enough. Come on, the same things they said about David, they could say about Kauai Bible Church. What's that little church on that little island going to do? I tell you what we're going to do. 
we're going to change the world. Because we're a people after God's own heart. And because we know that God shows us, not because we bring anything great to the table, God shows us because he saw our hearts. And if our hearts will remain in intimacy and commitment and obedience, God could use that to do any supernatural thing through our lives. And so we're going to be giant killers. We're going to be world changers. Because we know it wasn't about us to begin with. It's about how great God is. So don't worry that you're not gifted enough. Don't worry if you don't think you're attractive enough. Don't worry if you don't think you're influential enough or charismatic enough or educated enough. Don't worry if you think you're too big of a failure and your sins are too far gone. None of that matters. We're underdogs. God's going to choose us anyway because he sees a people after his own heart. And as underdogs, we're going to change the world because our God is way bigger than any giant the world's going to send at us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Will you stand together with me? I want to pray for you today. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jesus. I want to begin by praying for anybody who may be here in person or anybody who's watching this through the digital campus listening to this through the podcast. If there's anybody here who is not confident that God has chosen them, the Bible says all we have to do is believe that Jesus is God. Believe that he died for our sins and rose from the grave victorious over death. If we can believe that in our hearts, and then surrender our hearts before Jesus as the Lord of our lives. That's all it takes. Anyone who's willing to surrender their heart before Jesus, God chooses. That's what he's looking for. God chooses. And the blood of Jesus covers our every sin. We are completely forgiven. We are redeemed, which means we are purchased by God. We're made new by him to live a new life for him, to walk in relationship with him. He chooses us. And the Bible says that when he chooses us, he deposits within us his Holy Spirit. And I believe there are two deposits. There's a deposit of the Holy Spirit that happens the moment he chooses you. And there's also a baptism of the Holy Spirit that could happen at that moment or any moment thereafter. He sees our hearts, he chooses us, and he fills us with his Holy Spirit. If that's you today and you're not confident that you've been chosen by God, then you simply make the decision in your heart that you believe in Jesus and that you're ready to surrender your life to him as Lord. And God will take it from there. Jesus, I pray for anybody right now who's making the decision. Oh, Lord, break their hearts. Break anything that's left in their human will that would stop them from giving themselves wholly to you. Lord, you see their hearts. You see this moment of surrender. You see this moment of salvation. And, Lord, you choose them right now. You choose them. You redeem them. Lord, you deposit your Holy Spirit inside of them. 
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for new life that's being born right now in Jesus' name. And then I pray for the rest of us today. Lord, would you keep our hearts soft before you? Lord, would you keep us as a people after your own hearts in intimacy, commitment, and obedience? Jesus, Jesus. Uh, would you remind us, Lord, that we were chosen because of your greatness, not ours? We were chosen because you're worthy, not because we're worthy. Remind us that we are the underdogs. We are the broken, the weak, the foolish, the shameful. And yet through our lives, Lord, you'd make something beautiful. And you make something wise and strong and powerful. Jesus, Jesus. Remind us, Lord, that it's all about you. And we will trust in you, Lord, to do the supernatural. We'll trust in you, Lord, when the giants come walking our way. We'll trust in you, Lord, when the circumstances seem like they're too much. Lord, we'll continue to decrease so that you might increase. Because we know, Lord, as long as you stay big in our lives, nothing will ever be too much. Jesus, call us to change our worlds. Call us to new ministries. Call us to preach the gospel. Call us to pray for the sick. Call us to love the unlovely. Call us to redeem the lost. Call us to great ministries, Lord, and we'll do it. Because it'll bring glory to your name. Because we're not strong enough or smart enough or powerful enough. But you are God. So use us like you used King David. Choose us like you chose him. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and send us out on great missions with great purposes on Kauai and around the world. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.